If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm number 30. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the handout on the back of the handout. Psalm 30 is printed and it's broken into two parts. I think that's one simple structure of the psalm. We just finished singing an old Christian hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Last time I sang that song was yesterday in Las Vegas, Nevada, as I was at a funeral service for Mr. and Mrs. Fellabom. Ryan's mom and dad had just recently passed away, and I was there with them for that service. And I, I think just to bring you up to speed... In the last 24 hours, spending time in the, the way that the writer of Ecclesiastes says, the house of mourning, mourning as in sadness, sorrow. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, blessed are those who dwell in the house of mourning. Have you ever experienced the blessing of dwelling with people who are in grief? or sat through a funeral service and started to think about what really mattered. If you didn't know, Ryan's parents actually died from contracting COVID. And I think that that's all the more relevant for many of us who might legitimately be afraid of death. Is that not a constant and if not overdone conversation in our world today? We are afraid of death and we are doing everything as a society to help deal with sickness, disease, and viruses. But yet it will only be in pulpits like this one or in churches like this one where you will hear something better than everything else in the conversation regarding COVID-19 and the impending death that will come for all of us, whether you get the vaccine or not, whether you get COVID or not. Friends, death is a constant reminder and reality of the one thing that a lot of us can count on. The old joke is there's two things that always exist, death and taxes. So, as we turn to Psalm 30, as I have been meditating on this all week and thinking about death, going to a funeral, mourning and grieving and weeping with loved ones, I have experienced blessing. It's not been fun, but there has been a deep, sobering blessing of being with those who are woken up to what really matters and are reminded, as we so faithfully were reminded yesterday at the funeral, Christ alone, Christ alone is our only hope in life and death. Would you follow along as I read Psalm 30, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. 
O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And may he write its eternal truth on our hearts now as we apply it to our lives. And do not just be hearers of God's word only, but doers also. Amen? I have one sentence, a big idea that I think will help you understand Psalm 30. And help you read the Psalms. It's one of my double aims as we go through the Psalms teach you each individual psalm, but also teach you about the psalms themselves, how to use them, how to read them. So here's one sentence, I think summarizing a big part of what's happening in Psalm 30 and all of the psalms. God saves individuals so that they can praise him in his congregation. God saves individuals. God saves here in Psalm 30, David so that David can praise him collectively with God's people in the assembly, in the congregation. And so here's how I want to structure the message outline. And it really is in large part by that little italicized or all capitalized superscription. A psalm of David, a song of the temple, dedication of the temple. So here's my outline for you. We're going to unpack this big idea by saying this is a song written by David. It's a song dedicated at the temple. And finally, it's a song fulfilled by Jesus Christ. That's our focus for today. God saves individuals like David so that he and we can praise him in the assembly, in the congregation. And so here we have an individual psalm, what is said to be written by David. More on that in just a second, but just for now, let's just take that idea written by an individual man. Notice how many times in our psalm it begins right with a personal pronoun and continues. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. You have not let my foes rejoice over me. So I think as we're reading this psalm, even if David didn't write it, but assuming he did, it is from a per first person personal 
presence, um, perspective. Look at verse 4, though. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. David's personal salvation in verses 1 through 3 gives way to verse 4. Oh, now all of you saints, and this is a translation, this word saints, of a Hebrew word that I've told you many times and will continue to because it's one of the most important Hebrew words in all the Bible, chesed. It's got that deep guttural chesed. Supposed to get some phlegm up when you say chesed. Well, that's what this phrase saints is. His loving kind ones. It's It's a noun talking not about God's love, but about loved ones. Those who have embodied and received the steadfast, chesed, covenant, faithful love of God. Plural. People. So David's salvation, that you see very clearly in verses 1 through 3, that he talks about giving praise to God because his enemies did not win. He cried for help. God healed. His soul was brought up from Sheol. It's an Old Testament way of talking about the grave, like being buried into the ground, or into a pit, metaphorically, like your life has gone down into a pit, or also to talk about the place of the dead, what happens to people after they die, and that they go to the place of the dead. It's got maybe at least these two or three different ideas. David's writing this, and so it seems as if it's a metaphor of, I was about to die. I had one foot in the grave. It's a poem. Poetically, you could hear someone meditating on the dangers in their life and that God restored, healed. He cried for help and God saved and rescued. And so his enemies who were trying to kill him did not succeed. So then, verse 4, peoples sing praise about this God. That's where I get our big idea. Do you see it? God saves individuals like David so that his people will know what this God is like, and then praise him together corporately, collectively. I see this happen also in the way that he talks later on in the second half. In verse 6, he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity that I shall never be moved. Things are going great for me. I'm on my mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. I've got a palace. I've got a house. I'm doing great. The Lord's saved me, the Lord's rescued me, but then he says, your face was hidden from me, and I was dismayed, and I cried out to the Lord, and I pled for mercy. And then notice the way that he talks about his purpose of being saved, so he can praise God. See that in verse 9? What profit would there be if I just died down into the pit? Different word from the previous reference to pit, but same idea. Will the dust, if I die and I go down into the pit and the grave, Sheol, and I just turn into dust, well, how's my dust going to praise you and tell everyone else about your faithfulness? Do you see the corporate nature? David is saved, and his deliverance is to give way to telling of God's faithfulness or gathering with God's people as we just did a second ago and singing, great is the faithfulness and the covenant promises of God where he keeps every one of them. So be merciful to me, Lord. I want to praise you. I want to tell about your faithfulness and the way that you took my sadness and turned it into dancing. 
you loosed my sackcloth. You're imagining David being a mourning, sorrowful, pitiful man wearing a very itchy, scratchy funeral clothing garment. And God himself, poetically, metaphorically, is taking off his garments and giving him new ones. What a picture. You have clothed me not with sackcloth and ashes and sadness, but with gladness. And then my whole soul, my glory, will sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. Do you see the psalm now? That one passed through. It was written by David, an individual man, in order for him to give praise to God in the congregation. And you must, before we move on to our next point, just take a moment to meditate on the significance of the middle heart of our psalm. Verse 5. How incredibly encouraging is it for you, two, three thousand years later, to hear this. Embassy Church, praise the Lord and his holy name because, verse 5, his anger is but for a moment and his favor, Hebrew word that we could translate, his grace is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Wonderful passage of scripture for you and I to just meditate on the purpose of why we've gathered together today, right now. Embassy Church, praise the Lord because he saves people, individuals. And those individuals are to come together and proclaim the testimony of God's favor, his grace. Does God get angry? It appears he does. His anger is real. It is not sinful for you to be angry, just like it's not sinful for God to be angry. The question is, why are you angry? And That's a great thing for you to think about every time you get angry. Most of the time you get angry and you just respond and you feel a certain way. And you should be reflecting and thinking, am I righteously angry because God has been profaned? More often than not, the answer is no. Our reputation has been profaned. Something that we loved and cherished in this world is being threatened or taken from us. And therefore, we respond with anger, sinful anger. So did you know the New Testament explicitly says, be angry. It's a command. Ephesians chapter 4, be angry, but do not sin in your anger. Be angry like God. God gets angry. Brothers and sisters, you are welcome to be angry angry but don't sin in your anger and be angry over things that are worth getting angry about many people think though that this is what God is most naturally like an angry God I mean when you just look around the world it's hard not to just sympathize with that view don't you all sometimes struggle yes pastor Phil yes we do we sometimes struggle to think God's angry Every time I sin, I think he's, he's going to smack me around because I've been around an abusive, angry father. And that's what I view when I hear that God is father. Oh, friends, the number of times I've heard a story or testimony like that, I'd be a rich man if I had even a penny. It's a lot. We struggle with this constantly. Our general disposition is to think that God exists in anger. But doesn't our passage make it very clear that even though God does get angry, it's 
short compared to his grace. Or take the Hebrew word hesed, the first time that we really learn what that word means, God's loving covenant faithfulness. It comes from that passage when Moses sees the glory of God in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Lord, show me your glory. And then God reveals his back to Moses. He can't see his face and live. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, compassionate, chesed. Go reread Exodus 33 and 34. And notice the first description, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger. Is that what you think about God when you think about God? That he does get angry, but it takes a while for him to get angry. That he has to be provoked to anger. At this point, I was just reminded because we just went through this book. Dane Ortland has written a magnificent, helpful meditation on this very point in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Of which, by the way, if you've not read and you'd like to, I still have lots of copies of that book. See me after church. I'd love for you to meditate on these things. Dane Ortland writes this. The Hebrew phrase, slow to anger from Exodus, is literally, God has long nostrils. You're supposed to picture an angry bull pawing at the ground, breathing loudly, nostrils flared. That is a short-nosed anger. But the Lord is described as long-nosed. His finger is not quick on the trigger. It takes a lot of accumulative provoking to draw God to anger. But compared to us, we are emotional dams ready to break at any moment. And God, he puts up with a lot. But not once throughout the Bible are we told that God is provoked to love, provoked to mercy, For God to get angry, it says he must be provoked to anger, but it's his mercy, or our passage would say, his favor, that's pent up, ready to gush forth at any moment. We tend to think that divine anger is what is pent up, spring-loaded. Oh no, it is divine mercy that is in his heart. And we think that it's his divine mercy that's slow to build. Friends, it's just the opposite. Divine mercy will burst at the slightest prick of God's heart. Christians are the ones that are command, sinful ones at that, to provoke each other to love, but God never is described as being provoked to love. He's only provoked to anger. We need no provoking to anger, but we constantly need provoked to love. Once again, then, the Bible is one long book trying to deconstruct your natural vision of who God actually is. End of quote. Do you see why you need a book like Gentle and Lowly to remind you that God's anger, it does come. It comes slowly. It lasts but for a moment when it is compared to the favor and loving kindness of God. And my guess is many of you might say, "Uh uh-huh, but your heart does not say amen. And therefore, we need to gather together to be reminded that God's holy word is to confront you with the true reality of who God is. And therefore, we should come together seeing the way God has saved individuals like David and like you and like me, delivering us from the pit. And then we can together tell God to one another, declaring his faithfulness 
Why should Israel praise God? He saved David. What about all these other Israelites? What if they weren't saved? What if they're still in the pit? His individual salvation, as especially the king who represents all of the nation, displays God's slowness to anger and his ever-constant, forever grace. When God saves any individual, it does show us that there are sorrows. There are sins. There is suffering to be saved from. But we should all keep in mind that these truths do not last forever. They are like the dark night that will give way to a new morning sun. Therefore we sing, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. When the sun rose this morning and you looked out the window and the entire world did not spin out in chaos in the middle of the night while you were sleeping, doing nothing, did you think, great is his faithfulness. There is new mercy fresh for us today. You can't trust tomorrow's mercies. They're not here yet, but you can bank on his mercy for today. And therefore, I think we should individually be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, come together and encourage one another to praise him collectively for who he is as he has been revealed in his saving acts. So when did God save David in our psalm? And that brings us to the dedication of the temple portion. So this is a psalm of David about a man who was saved so he could praise God in the temple with his people in the assembly. But when did David write this? And it says that it was written at the dedication of the temple, but for those of you that know your Bibles pretty well, you'll remember, David didn't actually get to see the temple get built. And this is where you need to jot this down, do some homework, do a little Bible reading this afternoon, and read 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, this isn't just a good homework assignment for today to understand Psalm 30. I have said, and I will say it again, Psalm 2 Samuel 7 is one of the top five most important Old Testament passages if you want to understand the whole Bible. It's ridiculously important. You should read it. You should understand it. It's God's covenant with David, a promise that he makes to David. And I believe that 2 Samuel 7 is in the background for our psalm. And what I mean is this. When it says that this is a psalm of David and it was dedicated at the temple, but we know that David wasn't even alive when the temple was built, what could that then mean? Option number one is that he wrote it, and it had nothing to do with the dedication, and it's just an individual psalm that then later, Christ, later you know, believers, Old Testament believers, when the temple was dedicated, were like, oh, let's use this one for the dedication. That's one view, view number one. View number two, somebody else wrote this psalm many years later when the temple was either being first built or when it was being rebuilt. The term dedication is actually the word Hanukkah. And it's because Hanukkah is a word that means to rededicate. And Hanukkah is a celebration of the rededication of a desecrated temple in the Maccabean period. End of the little history lesson there. Just know that that's another view is that much later on somebody wrote this and just attached David's name to it. View number two. View number three, the one I would want to suggest, David wrote this. Because in 2 Samuel 7, we know that he was on God's holy mountain in Jerusalem, confident that he'd be the one to build the temple. And God said, no, but your son will. Your son will build that temple. In fact, David, you want to build me a house because you're sitting nice and pretty in your palace, but it's me who's going to build your house 
There's this awesome play in words in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David in his house, palace, and he's got this nice palace. He's a king. He's won a lot of victories. His enemies are not rejoicing over him. He's rejoicing over his enemies. That's verses 1 to 3. I was saved. I was rescued. But honestly, you can see it. He's, he's kind of saying, I trusted in myself. I kind of thought that I had everything going well. Did you see that in our passage again? Verse 6, as for me in my prosperity, as I sat in my palace, man, me and God were tight. I'm never going to be moved. But then he realizes in verse 7, oh, it is because of that favor that we heard about in verse 5 that God made my mountain strong to stand in the first place. And so I was confronted with my own sin and I was humbled when you said, no, David, you will not build my temple. You hid your face from me, David says. And so he was dismayed, but he continues to praise God because God promised that he would keep his throne on the earth forever and ever. Let me just read that last line. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Again, top five most important Bible passages in the Old Testament. Here's one little section of it. The Lord declares to David, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you do lie down with your fathers, a reference to his eventual death, I will raise up for you an offspring who comes after you. And he shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So again, the flow of David's life is that he was, as the anointed king, in deep danger of literal death many times being pursued by his enemies. But as our psalm begins, he was rescued by God. And he was made the king over Israel on Mount Zion. This is the reference, I believe, of the strong mountain that God made for him. And so he wanted to build a house for God. But God says, David, I'm going to build your house and your kingdom. I think this is a really good personal application for me and you. David says, in his prosperity, I forgot that it was all the kindness of God in the first place for why I was sitting pretty on that mountain. That ever happened to you? When things get good, do you like to take the credit? When things get bad, do you like to blame God? Hmm, funny how that works, isn't it? It's a great question for all of us, personally, as we apply God's word to our life. Like David, what is your confidence in? Is it in your bank account? How much money you have? Is it in your good looks? Your great health? The great resources of your family and friends? Your good job? Maybe your intellect, your wisdom? I mean, we could go on. These are the things that we regularly are tempted to put our hope in. I'm not going to make any suggestions for any of you individually, but collectively, two years of almost the COVID pandemic. What have you observed about our society, about the natural human impulse, about how to deal with sickness, disease, and death? 
Is it to rely upon David's God, the Lord, for healing, for deliverance from the grave, knowing death is inevitable? Or have we turned to relying on government officials, the scientific or medical community, for our healing, our deliverance, and our salvation? And of course, all of you should know that there is lots of wisdom needed to know when and how and what to do with the advances in this world. The question should be straightforward, though. Let's not take this point in the sermon out of context. What's your ultimate hope in? What's your hope when you're sitting in a funeral like I was yesterday and you're forced for an hour plus to just think about the devastating reality and the pain of death? It won't be all those other things I just listed. It won't be money. It won't be government officials. It won't be medical advancements. And in that moment, we need a God who is one who is able to rescue, one who has favor that lasts forever. It should be clear from our passage that if David, who is promised that his kingdom would last forever, even after he dies, then we might be asking, what happened? What's the end of the story? Well, that's the end of the sermon. What did I say the outline was? A psalm by David of his individual salvation that leads collectively to praise for his people. And that it was for the dedication of the temple. And we know that that dedication wasn't experienced by David himself because he too died and was buried like his fathers were into the grave. And then his son Solomon did build the temple. Ah, fulfillment of the promise. A son of David built the temple that David hoped, and they had a dedication ceremony, and I would presume Psalm 30 was read. End of story, wonderful conclusion, hallelujah, amen, we can go home. Except Solomon was terrible. And that little prophecy about how if your sons start to sin, well, then they will be disciplined with the rod. For their iniquities, I will discipline the sons of David that do not obey my laws. And Solomon was one of the chief of sinners of those sons. And therefore the kingdom and the temple itself were flattened. That's the end of the Old Testament. I mean, there's a little more to it, but that's in essence. It really doesn't end with a crescendo. It ends with a really downer. God's people, not living in God's land, dispersed all over the nations. The temple was rebuilt, but not to the former glory. And there they are, waiting for the promise God made to David to come true. Enter in a son of David, Jesus Christ. He fulfills Psalm 30 in more ways than one. Think about the way that 2 Samuel 7 then gives us language to understand the fulfillment of God's promise, gives us reason for hope. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There would be a son of David who would be called the son of God. It says that when he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But that when you read Jesus' story, he never sinned. It says it explicitly in the book of Hebrews, and it says right at his trial that Pilate, 
King Herod and all those involved could not find any charge to charge against him except for these trumped-up charges of calling himself equal with God the Father, destroying a temple, all of these things start merging together. But here's the point. Jesus committed no iniquity, but he was beaten with the rods of men. How do you resolve that little riddle? A son of David, who's called the Son of God, enters into the world and declares that he is going to fulfill the promises that God made in 2 Samuel 7. Did no sin, but God punished him. Maybe this is a different kind of king. Maybe he became our substitute. Perhaps Jesus entered into the world and was sent in order for him to take upon himself the sins and iniquity of David and of Solomon and their sons and all of us. If, in fact, you would believe that the death of Jesus on the cross, when he ascended Mount Zion, the mountain that God made for David, that mountain became not a place of prosperity, but a place of desolation, of crucifixion. That very same mountain that David refers to was the place where Jesus hung on a cross between thieves. That was the place where he was whipped. and He was stripped naked. Remember the idea of being clothed with gladness? Realize that you and I can be clothed with gladness because Jesus Christ was stripped of his clothes and they gambled at at his feet, the very clothes on his back. It's because of the death of Jesus on the cross and because that he did not stay dead that you and I can have hope. What's our only hope in life and death? It's Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, the sinless one who took the punishment for us. It's Jesus who on resurrection morning made our psalm burst with meaning. Not just trivial, flippant, Christian, biblical sayings, but historical reality. There was a dark night. When darkness came over the whole earth and Jesus hung on the cross, was buried into Sheol, went to the place of the dead, and then Sunday morning, Easter, resurrection, Jesus Christ burst from the grave. He rose again. Did you guys know today is Resurrection Sunday? Today is not literal Easter, but it might as well be. Every Sunday is a celebration of that day. Morning may last through the night. But joy comes in the morning. Sorrow lasts for the night. But resurrection joy comes when Jesus forth came forth from the grave. Do you see why we need to read all of the Psalms in light of the gospel of Jesus and how this is not forcing the gospel in. It just comes out. God made a promise that David's kingdom would last forever and ever. And David's son is sitting on not just the throne in Jerusalem, but the throne in heaven as he ascended and took his rightful place at the right hand of God. And forever and ever, there is a king on a throne who is a human, who is an Israelite son of David. I say, hallelujah. And that deliverance of Jesus, the greater David, is the deliverance that you and I can receive as well. Because just like David says, he saved me, so Jesus can say, he saved me. So come, gather together and receive this salvation of this incredibly gracious God. 
His anger lasts for a moment. But his grace, that will be forever and ever if you would receive that grace now. Some of you have. Some of you are here today and you're a Christian. You've heard this a thousand times. And I'm hoping that many of you are like, I'm glad to hear it another time today, Pastor Phil. That's why I'm here. And some of you might be here today and you have never received the grace of the Lord Jesus. You have never repented of your self-confidence. You're putting your hope in the wrong thing. And that is why I believe you're here today. I would encourage you to do a self-examination and investigate what's your hope in. Do you have hope beyond the grave? Do you believe that there is a man that reigns on the throne of heaven and that man is Jesus Christ? You will give an account to him. And I pray that you will see that the gospel of Jesus gives us hope in life and in death and beyond death as he rescued us from the grave. Friends, we are a church because we have repented of our sins, put our only hope in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we should come together week in and week out, be the church that is the temple of God. I was thinking about this for some of you, just real simply. David worshiped God in a tent, but he wanted to worship God in a tabernacle. From a tent to a temple, he wanted to worship God in, the, in a building, right? So from, from a tent to a temple, a building. The New Testament tells us that Jesus became the tent and the temple. So from a person to a people. The salvation that God gave to Jesus, the person, is spread to you and me. And the salvation that is offered to all of us now, if you would turn and trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And then we collectively can gather to be his temple, filled with God's spirit. So I'd encourage you to come to church every week just to hear this news and by your very presence be a part of God's temple. Do you realize how significant that is? You just being here and existing as a repenter and a believer? I think it's a big deal and I want you to think about it that way for the rest of this week. God saves you individually so that we can praise him collectively in the assembly. This is a gift. So let's pray now, thanking God for that gift. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the promise that was given to David that there would be one who sits on the throne forever and ever. And we are so blessed for those of us who have repented of our sin and putting our trust in Jesus to receive the joy that comes in this salvation. I pray that we would realize that we have been saved and that salvation is not just about the presence of eternal life, living with you forever, but that is a salvation that loosens us from the power of sin and the corruption and bondage of this world so that through our hope in you, we can be very different kind of people. Different in the way that we get angry, different in the way that we put our hope through the middle of a pandemic, and in a thousand more ways. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will guide this church to faithfully assemble and tell of your faithfulness, your faithfulness to deliver and save us in small ways with our bank accounts and in big ways with our very lives. I pray that this church would be not tired of hearing about salvation and the testimonies of people who have been delivered from sin and destruction. 
Oh God, what a joy it is for me to look out on these faces and know that there are countless stories of people that have had one foot in the grave but are here alive because of your gospel. I praise you for it. I thank you for it and I ask that in the name of Jesus, you will spread your gospel through the faithful witness of this church in Jesus' name. Amen.